good morning. If you uh, are joining us online, you, you saw what we just saw at chapel, you missed it, but I know you've got a good thing going on over there, but that's, uh, that's gonna be hard to follow up. Uh, wow, I'm just still trying to, woo, get settled down in there. <laughs> well, uh, we're in a series called Fruit of the Spirit, and um, it's a good series. It's challenging. Don't you find that it's been really tough? Uh, and, it, and it's really hard. Memorizing those nine fruits... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, fitness, <laughs> Jamie said to me, he said, it's more than memorizing the fruit. It's actually about the fruit. And I said back to him, I said, well, you're having a hard time with this. I mean, you preached on love and you said, wow, that was really hard. And you preached on joy and you told us you don't have a lot of joy in your life. You've been very vulnerable with us and we appreciate that. And, and then you got to the whole idea of, of peace and that got difficult, patience and kindness you took two weeks to hit us with. And you claimed that was about you and your struggle with kindness and even last Sunday, it was so hard for you with this whole kindness fruit, you had to have Larry Crabb help you get through it. <laughs> and then we came to goodness. He said, I can't even be here. And so uh, he said, Neil, I need you to, I need you to take goodness. I can't, even, I can't even be there. So he's, and I, I teasingly say that because the point is, he said, it's not about you. It's not a list of to-dos. It's a derived part of what God is doing through us. And that's what makes this so challenging. I mean, I'm really bummed out that anger is not a fruit of the spirit or that grumpiness, because those are easy. And I want it to be easy. And I want to play a part in this. I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago, and I said, I think I get the fruit thing. I've been a pastor for about 28 years. I know I only look like I'm 28 years old. And I said, uh, I, said I get it. I can't make an apple. I get that. God produces that fruit through me. He makes a fruit. I said, but I want to do everything I can. I want to till the soil of my life. I want to fertilize it so that God can produce his fruit through me. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about. And my friend looked at me and said, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? You fertilizing the soil of your life. You cultivating that. I said, the Bible's pretty clear. God is the gardener, not you. And I felt a little silly because I've been a pastor for 28 years and I've preached on that. And so I was like, well, yeah, I get it. And so if God being that, I want to dig my roots so deep in the soil that he has gardened and cultivated and fertilized. I get it. But I want to be so deep so that God can produce that fruit through me. And he stopped me again and he said, what are you, what are you talking about? The Bible's pretty clear. And then he took me to John 15, a passage I know well. Many of you know well. And take a look at John 15, verse 1. He said, remember, he said, Jesus is the vine, not you. And so I was a little embarrassed. And God is the vine dresser. God is the gardener. I was a little bit embarrassed by that and a little frustrated. I looked at him and I said, well, what are we? <laughs> He said, well, look down a few verses. And he went down to John 15, verse 5. He said, Jesus is the vine. You're a branch. That just sounds so boring. I'm a branch. I'm like, so, so I can't do anything? I'm nothing? He said, look a little further down, right? He bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I said, I'm a branch. You can do nothing. He says, yeah, that's it. This is good. This is really, really good. So we are a bunch of branches who can do nothing. So let's close in prayer and get out of here. <laughs> you know, it's really tough though, isn't it? When you, we can joke about it because it is so hard. I want a bigger part. 
I wanna get points for coming to church this morning, don't you? I want that to count for something. I, I wanna matter. I wanna play a bigger role in this thing that God is doing. But what's so hard about the fruit of the Spirit, it's fruit. We abide in him. We have to wait for this fruit to be produced in and through us. I wanna, I wanna play a bigger role. I wanna be loved. The Bible made me that way. The Bible made me dependent to be needy. So why can't I do more? I mean, doing more works in the world, right? We work hard, we save a little money, we climb up the corporate ladder, we get in position to vote for the right person in office. All this is an exciting year. We get married, we have kids, we have the good life that Jamie and Larry Crabb were talking about last week. And those of you that have had that good life for a while, you know what I'm talking about. It's only for a little while, isn't it? What happens? Life happens, the time goes by, job goes sideways, the economy tanks, the wrong person gets into office, you get to the top of the corporate ladder only to find that it's leaning up against the wrong building, your spouse changes. Isn't it funny that it's always the spouse that changes but you stay the same? <laughs> I married her, what happened? She changed, I'm still the same guy. Not likely, somewhere along the line your kids started eating stupid pills, I don't know, where's the good life? And we can't find it. We learned that last week so well. And that's what Larry Crabb hit us with. And he said, you know, it gives us all a sense of attitude. We come into this world with this sense of, a, of an attitude. I love the way Larry Crabb, since we're talking about him, said it in his book, Fully Alive. He said, we all come into this world with that kind of an attitude. And, and listen to this and tell me if you don't resonate with his uh, sense of what our, we feel and what we feel entitled to. He said, along with everyone else born of human parents, I arrived on this planet assuming that if God existed, he existed for me. When I was told that he was a good God, it was immediately clear to me that he had no higher priority than seeing to my personal comfort. I realized, of course, that I had to play my part. If I did a reasonably good, good job of living by his principles and keeping most of his rules, God would be obligated by the standards of justice to pour deserved blessings into my life. And that, as I understood things, was how life worked, how life could be good. Do you relate to that? He goes on to say in his book, I also believed that I knew what made life good, a short list of things to do today that were easily accomplished. Doctors who smiled when they looked at my test results, more money than bills, ownership in a vacation villa, kids who loved Jesus, a marriage that made me feel good about myself, the blessed life that I could look forward to enjoying every day. And he closes his section off by saying, my job was to live in such a way that kept God cooperating with my plans. <laughs> Have you been there? I think most of us look at the fruit of the Spirit like it's a memory game of nine different fruits. I think we look at it as a to-do list of something that I can check off if I'm seven out of nine on a given day, it's good. But I think what you're gonna see through this series, and I hope what you see today, is it's anything but that, and the result or the solution is refreshingly different. You see, having that kind of attitude about God serving me is completely self-centered. It's bad theology. This is what is good theology. Jesus said in his word, it's finished. Stop trying so hard. We keep trying to put so much on it and so much part of our responsibility. You're a branch. I'm a branch. And that's a good thing. 
But if I take that beautiful branch in my yard that might be blossoming with wonderful flowers and I cut it off and I bring it into my house, it's not going to survive. You and I both know that. And so Jesus' message to us is you're a branch, you're good for nothing, I don't need you. This gets really depressing, but stay with me, it gets better. Theology says, I, Jesus, I don't need you, but here's the beautiful picture of the story and what we, we prayed together, what we sung together, is that Jesus says, I wanna do something through you. I wanna use you to do something amazing as you abide in me as the branch. That's good theology. It's simple. Abide, you are a branch, but it's a good thing. And as you abide in him, you can do everything everything that he wants to do in and through you. But it's so hard because the world says it so differently. Look up here at the way the world says things. Our world says you start with authority, right? So a government, a boss at work, and you have this authority in your life and you're held accountable to a standard in that authority. You might have rules that govern what you do. And if you follow those rules well enough, what happens? You're affirmed. Good job. It's the all-state check you get for good driving, right? Good driving. I can't do it, but, but you're affirmed in that. And you follow the rules and rules enough, somewhere along the line, you become accepted. We get that. And trust me, this kind of thinking infects every area of your life. We bring it into our marriage, bring it into our parenting. We, we bring it into every area of our life. And God says, no, it's different because here's the theology of the Bible. Look over here, it's different, it's flipped. The Bible says that God starts with acceptance. And a lot of us who say, well, I want to do more. I want to, I want, I've got to play a part. I've got to do, we're missing the, but we don't want to say that. But Jesus said that even while you were sinners, Paul said in Romans 5, 8, God's love was demonstrated in such a way, Christ still died for you. So even when you were enemies of God, God said, the way I've created you, I've accepted you. You are made in my image. Now we need to receive that. There's a theology there about committing your life to Christ, being adopted as sons and daughters into his family. But God said it's so easy. You're already in in the sense of I made you, I accept you. And I love it. And Jesus says, because I accept you, I already affirm you. You know, we live in such a, a culture where we are so insecure, aren't we? Because of the first section where we feel like we've got to follow these rules and I'm not doing them right. I, I might not be accepted. And the reminder of scripture, Jesus says you're accepted and get this, I see you the way you don't see you. I see you the way I created you to be. I see what one pastor called your redemptive potential. Think of Gideon. Maybe you know Gideon in the Bible with the fleece and the, and the small army that God used to conquer. You know when God found Gideon or the angel of the Lord came to Gideon as one of the leaders in the nation of Israel? You know where he was? Hiding in a cave, winnowing wheat. Those of you farmers know that you don't winnow wheat to separate the chaff in a cave. You need wind to blow all those husks away. And here's Gideon in a cave. He's hiding. Why is he hiding? Because their people keep getting pillaged. They keep being marauded, and he is afraid. He's the leader, and the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and he greets him by this, by saying this, Hail, mighty warrior. I'm thinking mighty loser, you might say, in our culture, Right? 
Because he's hiding, he's doing anything but leading. What's the point? God sees Gideon as he intended Gideon to be. He calls him who he is so that Gideon might rise up to the level to know how God made him. He accepted him, affirmed him, and then we're held accountable by a beautiful word of God that is not a list of commands. Those of you that are approaching Christianity like this is a bunch of rules, you are gonna fall away. You won't, come, you won't get it. These are a pathway to freedom. These are the stepping stones of life. And God said, I wanna hold you accountable to this because it gives you freedom. When you walk outside of this, you're gonna go right back to this. And then he says, you are protected under my authority. I am over you, I protect you. And that is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of what God gives to us in our lives. Well, we wanna look at Galatians 5.22 here. Let's look at that. It says, the fruit of the Spirit, we've covered off love. We've talked about joy and peace and patience, kindness, and today we're on goodness. In the coming weeks, it'll be faithfulness, gentleness, and, and self-control. And the definition of that word goodness, it comes from that Greek word agathosune. It's used about four times in the New Testament, so it's not used a lot but it's a sister or its root is the word agathos that is used over 101 times. Agathosune has the idea of goodness with generosity. You might say, well, how's it different than kindness? What you're gonna see that is it, it's more of an inherent goodness in us. It's God's goodness in us. And by the time we leave here in a few moments or a few minutes, I hope you leave with an understanding of how this goodness works in and through our lives. You know, the Greeks at the time of Christ or the time of the philosophers, you remember Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, those wonderful philosophers, they, they had a definition of goodness. They saw it as excellence. Goodness was excellence. It came through reason and virtue. It was more of a, an academic exercise. Philo was a contemporary of, of Jesus Christ. He was a, a Jewish philosopher that was steeped in Greek training, and he wanted to try to bring them both together. And so he said, yeah, it does have to do with, um, with, with um, being reason, and he brought piety into it, our behavior, and he brings faith and wisdom into it as good things. But they still were missing the point because he still leaned with the philosophers more, and goodness being more of a mental thing. And then we have the Jews, and we have the Old Testament. We have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. The Jews would see God as the definer of good. God was the one who brought good to the, the chosen people, and he brought it through the law. And they would see the law or goodness as being obeying the law. And so you have a standard, you have a bunch of rules, and they would try to measure up to those rules, and the better they did through obedience, they were good. That makes sense, doesn't it? I like that. I like having rules. Give me rules and I can tell you if I'm a seven, eight, nine out of 10, if you look at the 10 commandments and I'm doing pretty good and I can use that as a measuring stick and that's what they did. We saw this with Jesus when he confronted the rich young ruler and he comes up to him and he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Do you remember the story? And how does Jesus respond? He looks at him and the first thing he says is, why do you ask me what is good? And he says, there's only one who is good. That's defeating right away, isn't it? One, I thought we could be good by obeying the law. And he says, well, if you would enter life, keep my commands. And the rich young ruler says, good, check, I've done it. I've done your commandments. Remember how the story ends? 
Jesus says, you've done well, you've kept the commands, but one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, wait, whoa, wait a minute. What is that all about? Jesus introduces a new measuring stick. You see, what you're gonna realize from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is all about our hearts and it's not about our outward behavior. The kind of goodness that's talked about here in the fruit of the spirit is a goodness like none other. It's not goodness you create, it's not fruit, it's God's perfect goodness coming through you. And the rich young ruler walks away sad because he knew that his heart was really for him. How many times do we think the rules that we've made up for Christianity are really about us? I'm convicted by this as I walk through this with you. Even David in Psalm 14, verse three, he recognized that there is none who does good, not even one. And so we see that God is a definer, the very definition of good. And throughout the New Testament, what we realize is his goodness brings salvation. His goodness through Jesus Christ brings salvation. Why? Because that rich young ruler, his heart never turned toward God. And we begin to see the purpose of the Old Testament law was never about trying to get a percentage of doing good. It was something entirely different. And what the New Testament ushers in is Jesus brings a goodness that gives us salvation. Look at Hebrews 9, 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, remember they had the ceremonial law? They had the sacrificial system. Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to complete that. And it happens right here. He was the high priest of the good things that have come. And then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Remember the holy places, the holy of holies? Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, the sacrificial system, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He paid the price once and for all. Our sin separates us from God. The punishment for sin is eternity apart from God. It's hell. Jesus' message is I lay down my life for you once and for all, paid in full as you receive me and begin to follow me. And so we see that the law is still good, but for an entirely different reason. See, the law isn't good because it gives us a standard like the Jews thought. It's good because it reveals our desperate need for God. It reveals our sin. Paul ratifies this in Romans chapter seven when he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, he said. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And there it is. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The purpose of the law was to show yours and my sin and their desperate need to be rescued have you ever been there? It's a good place to be, God says. When you give up, when you cease striving, when you recognize you're just a branch, that you're not the gardener, that you're not the vine, you are a branch. And that just a branch becomes an amazing branch because you flourish through the lifeblood of God's spirit coursing through every part of your being. And so that goodness brings to us salvation. And the theological term is that now you are justified. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been justified. It means you've been declared good. Not of your own power, not of your own doing. God says, I have made you good by the shedding of my own blood for you that has cleansed you from your sin. And now 
You're still good, but for an entirely different reason that I hope we see in the next few moments. And so you see the early uh, Greek philosophers trying to be good through their virtue, and you see the other philosophers trying to be good in their mind, and the Jews following the laws at standard, and I'm still drawn to that. Many times I still live as an Old Testament believer when I've been given a new covenant in Christ, and I try to follow all these rules. Ben Franklin, interestingly enough, in his autobiography, he writes about a time that he tried to, he decided, he goes, that he wanted to um, go for moral perfection. Have you ever tried that? I am never gonna sin again. Sometimes when I get caught and I'm in trouble, you know, my mom always says, well, are you sorry you got caught or you're sorry you did it? And, and I say, I'm never gonna do it again. Some of you that are caught up in a habitual sin over and over again, you've been in the same place, you said, never again. I'm never gonna abuse, I'm never gonna drink, I'm never gonna say, I'm not gonna act like that, only to find out that you fall down again. And it's exhausting. Ben Franklin in his autobiography says, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. See, I can save you some time. He already did this. He said, I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclinations, custom, or company might lead me into. And as I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. He says, but I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I ever imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of, in, of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. And he says, I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping. And it's true. The more good you try to be, you know what happens? The more bad you realize that you are. Ben Franklin figured it out, so stop trying in your own merit and realize that the goodness that you strive for simply points out your sin, and God says, I will make you good through Christ. And we still try to be good, don't we? A few years ago, there was a billboard campaign uh, by a group called the Chicago Coalition of Reason. And they put billboards all up over the Chicago area like this. They said, are you good without God? Because they felt like the Christians, they're doing all this. We want to respond to that. Are you good without God? So the response on the sign is, millions are. Interesting study. Interesting study. And the billboard begs the question, can a person who rejects God's very existence, can someone who says that God is not real and reject his authority do good? Think about that for a moment. Can people do good? They can, right? They see, you see it all the time. I see people being kind. I see people paying their, their taxes. I see people who don't believe in the authority of God give money to the poor. They do many good things. But from a Christian vantage point, it misses the point. What is it all about? We have the same size heart, an atheist and a follower of God. But Christians do good things for an entirely different reason. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are God's workmanship. God made us, and he made us for a purpose, and that purpose was that the world would see his goodness through us. That's what it's all about. People who strive to be good for a little bit of time, it's really difficult. It's exhausting. It's like trying to put armor on the dash of your car. You got to keep doing it over and over, and if you don't keep up on it, those of you armor all people, guess what happens? Your dashboard is going to crack. Some of you might have to leave right now to go put armor on your dashboard. <laughs> it's exhausting. And you know, when people try to do that to be good, there's really no fulfillment in that other than narcissism for you. What's in it for me? 
And I deal with people day in and day out as a pastor on this wonderful staff here who are battling depression because they're exhausting themselves trying to be good without God. It's kind of like a, a few weeks ago, I actually ran in, in a race. I'm, I'm gonna boast here a little bit. I ran in a race. Some of you maybe did this. This was the Rock and Roll Arizona Half Marathon. Can you see that? That's pretty cool. You can clap at that. I have received the reward of men. But I finished the race, and I told my wife that I won because they gave me a medal. So don't, please, if you see her, don't tell her anything different. I won the race. No, I didn't. I finished the race, and I was surprised when I stumbled across, I mean, ran, I sprinted across a line, walked. They gave me one of these, and it's really cool. And I put it on. I thought there was a picture of me with it on. I took a selfie of me with it on. I thought it was amazing. And then I thought, well, I can't wear this forever. And so what am I gonna do with it? I took it off and I, and I put it on display. My wife has this really cool bunch of pictures and flowers and I put it there on our flowers and she came home and she said, what's that? I'm like, I won this. I won. So she took it off and it's been on my nightstand for the last three weeks. And I don't know what to do with it. It's cool. I don't know what to do with it, but it's what it's like when we're good. My point is, when we're striving to be good, it's exhausting. We don't know where to put it. And it leads to depression. And the message of the Bible, that all the goodness that we strive for, God has a purpose in the goodness that he wants to do through you. It points to our need for salvation. I mentioned Ephesians 2.10, that we're his creation. But Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says that by, for, by grace you've been saved through faith, right? It's a gift of God, not by any works that you can do. And the more you are trying to be good, if you're exhausted this morning, hear this message. God says, be still. Let me do this work through you. The more good you try to be, the more you realize I need to be rescued. And that's the message of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He rescues us and he puts us on the path to goodness again, but for an entire different purpose and with a completely different empowerment. And so since these fruits, as I wrestle with you, they're derived traits, not a list of to-do things, it's imperative that we begin to understand God's goodness. What is his goodness all about? And then we have to understand his goodness, but we also have to believe in it. I think most of us would agree. We'd stand here and say, well, God is good. He's good. But do you really believe he is good? And if you begin to believe that he's good, you've got to believe if that fruit has got any hope of coming through you and being born in and through your life. So what is the goodness of God? What is it all about? I love Psalm 34, verse 8. It's a little plaque on my desk, and I hope it's more than that. But it simply says this, and you might know it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an awesome verse. But it's so potent. You know, it reminds me of a, of a chef a chef is not a cook. A cook cooks food, but a chef makes a, a feast. You ever had a chef come up to you and said, hey, taste this, right? And uh, uh, whenever somebody comes up and says, smell this, don't, because you know it's gonna be bad. But when a chef comes up and says, taste this, you wanna say yes. You know why? They are so confident in their craft. They believe that if you taste just a little bit of that, you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna want it all. They are so kind, and taste and see that the Lord is good. God's goodness can be seen, and even in a fallen world, when we complain about politics, the weather, and bad people, and all the things that are happening, God's goodness is still being revealed in this world. We see his goodness all around us. What does that goodness look like? It's amazing. It's unnatural to you and me. It's not natural for me to be good. God's goodness is seen in his creation. 
We have a beautiful place that we live in. In Genesis, God looked at all that he had created and he declared that it was not just good, but it was very good. His goodness is something that we can't earn. And this is a bummer for me. In Matthew chapter 5, 45, listen to what it says. Matthew 5, 45 says, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Oh, I want the sun just to rise on me. He says, he, he causes, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be amazing if we were just followers of Christ and everybody got the bad weather, but it was always sunny over my house? No, God's goodness is given regardless. We see his goodness, and you're gonna see why in a moment why that is true. Psalm 149.9 says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made, not just those who may deserve it or may be followers of him. His goodness is very, very personal. He wants you to see his goodness. It gives us a perfect model for goodness. God is perfect. Psalm 119, 68 says, you are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. And so we can look to God as a perfect role model of goodness. That's why we have his word. We can look to his word as a perfect role model for us. It assures us that God's purpose for us is good. We see that all through the Bible. You know, one such passage is the one we read. James 1:17 that said, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God is good. He wants the world to see his goodness. And get this, sometimes his goodness is revealed through adversity. You understand that? Every crisis that you go through a dying world is dying to see what it looks like to move through those dark times and to see God's goodness move through adversity. Sometimes his adversity is, is, a, is a corrective measure for you to come back to him, to come back and abide in him. And so even crises in our life, adversity in the classic passage of Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. It offers security and encouragement in our life. Psalm 52, one says, the goodness of God endures continually. And what is this all about? God's goodness is all about drawing you to God. And if you hear anything this morning, hear that. God's goodness in creation, the sun that rises, the breath you breathe, the health you have, the beauty you see in a flower are all designed to point people to God. And in fact, you could argue that goodness is at the core of our Christian faith because God does everything for our good. So you see it in creation, you see it in the world, and his goal of bringing the fruit of goodness in your life is so that people can see God through you. We spend so much time as a church, I spend so much time as a pastor trying to help people answer the question, what is God's calling in my life? You already have it. If you're a Christian, you're called by God. And then what is God's will for my life? What people mean is, where should I work? Who should I marry? What should I do? And God says, I'm not as concerned about that. I'm more concerned that you're abiding me day in and day out so that you can produce or produce, or I can produce good works through you so people can see it. And so what does spirit-infused goodness look like? Let me just spend the last couple minutes that we have together, six minutes, to describe four things of what it looks like in your life. Don't see these as a to-dos, but it's like the fruit of the Spirit. When you see it in a bowl, they're, they're so, so similar that many times you might not be able to detect the difference in them, but they're God's fruit. And every one of those fruits point back to the attributes of God. God is all loving, right? And when we see love in our life, God's love, it's powerful. God is all joy. 
When people see you have joy despite circumstances, it is powerful. God is the, the giver of peace. He is peaceful. And when people see peace in your life, and he is the giver of goodness, when people see God's goodness in your life, it's amazing. And I think the first thing, and, and you have uh, an outline that's just a bunch of, uh, it's a blank piece of paper. I'm like, they never let me get my outline in there. Yeah, we just put a blank. Jamie's more important, so we know it's kidding. But write this down. I think it looks like this. I think it looks like moral excellence. Now I say, well, that's legalism. No, no, no. I think when we're just trying to be moral, that's really hard. But when we abide in Christ and his goodness is seen through us, we do change. I think we want to in a world, we wanna say, I wanna come to God and not change. But if you've committed your life to Christ and your life's not changing, I would begin to wonder, do I really believe this? Let it be a, a dashboard light that comes on that needs to remind you to check your soul. Because we will begin to change. Look at what Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians chapter one, verse nine. He, he said, and so from the day we heard, Paul said to the Christians there, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What, what is that saying? that God wants to bear his goodness through you, that he's more concerned about that being projected in your life. Because here's the deal, here's the bottom line. God's will, it, it, it might be something, he might speak to you about who to marry and where to go, but what's way more important than that, his will is that you and I make God look good. Is that a paradigm shift for some of us? His will is that you and I make, make God look good. That's the purpose of the fruit of goodness, that we make God do good. Do things in your life in such a way that people will look at you and go, whoa, I'm gonna have, what, how, what, what are you drinking? What are you eating? Better yet, what God are you following? Because I wanna follow that God. And all of a sudden, evangelism becomes less about tips and tricks and techniques to win people into the kingdom and more about a beggar showing another beggar where to find bread and inviting them to walk with them. And evangelism happens as a fruit of, not just a command that God gives us. The rich young ruler was morally excellent, but it was all about him. How do we know? Because he walked away from God. See, I believe when we taste God's goodness, we're gonna be fine with being a branch. We're gonna hang out with him and it'll, we'll bear it in our lives and it'll look like a changed life. Moral excellence is the fruit. Remember Ephesians 2.10 that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Unlike the billboard, people who did the billboard, their, their good deeds were without any purpose. We're good because of who we are, a branch, a grape branch or a grape vine can't make lemons. It can only make grapes. That's what it was designed to do. You were designed to produce the fruit of his spirit in and through your lives. And the only thing that you're called to do is abide in him. And we need to figure out how to abide and to remain in him. That's critical. But without any moral excellence, there's no credibility for the Christian message in and through our lives. And so our lives begin to change as we begin to abide in him and it looks like moral excellence. When you live a moral life and then you add love to that, people see God, that's the purpose. It's not about getting the right person into political power and expending all of our energy or, 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 or trying to get a lot of people to, to be convinced of something. It's really about abiding in God, and he takes it. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but abiding in him and people seeing God through you. Look what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 11. 
He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, which means you and I, for followers of Christ, we're just passing through in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our good deeds that come from God are things that people see. Good deeds surround living morally in this passage in Peter. And there's gonna be a time and place as people see your life that they're gonna say, give me a reason for the hope that lies within you. I remember sharing that passage that Paul said, be ready in season to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. And the men in my group said, that's kind of a silly question. I said, could it be because you don't live a compelling life? Could it be that people don't see Jesus in you? Because if they see that fruit in you, they're gonna ask you, what is it about you? I think another thing it looks like is faith. We don't have time to get into the passage, but Barnabas in the book of Acts was an amazing guy. He was a son of encouragement. And in Acts 11, we're told that Barnabas, he was a good man. He was full of the spirit and of faith. Barnabas' goodness was rooted in his faith. People need to see faith today. I think a third thing is, is knowledge. And knowledge, Paul warned us in Corinthians, has a tendency to puff us up. We're Scottsdale Bible Church, and sometimes we can lord it over people with our Bible knowledge. I might want to impress you with a Greek word that I might know. You might want to one-up me with something you know better. But you know the purpose of knowledge was to help instruct people. Look what Paul said in Romans 15. He said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. So but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and look at this, able to instruct one another. The purpose of knowledge, coupled with the fruit of God's goodness coursing through your life, is that when God gifts you with understanding, you come alongside people who don't understand, and you help them understand. That's goodness. When you debate somebody and win, that's selfishness. And I think lastly, it looks like love. Look at 1 Timothy 1.5 where Paul said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what it's all about. He, and, and throughout Paul's letter says that the supreme good is God's perfect love. Without love, 1 Corinthians 13 says what? We are nothing. When we don't abide in him, John 15.5 says we are Nothing. And we're branches that are good for nothing if we don't abide in him. You might want to jot down Galatians chapter six. I don't think it's an accident that chapter five with the fruit of the spirit flows into chapter six, specifically talking about goodness. We don't, again, don't have time to go into it, but goodness in verse three is not of our own doing. Paul says in, in Galatians 6, three, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. In verse four, we're told to test our motivations of our goodness. In verse six, we're to be good toward our teachers. In verses seven and eight, reaping what you sow, godly goodness reaps eternal life. Galatians 6, 9, one of my life verses, let us continue to do that which is good, knowing that in time we will reap a bountiful harvest. That's what's frustrating. This was frustrating here. Fruit takes time to grow. I don't want to wait. I want it now. And God does all things in his time. And we don't feel like we're doing anything if we're just abiding. That's the problem in our church. But God says, be still, abide, we must. 
And here's the beautiful promise of scripture. The fruit will come. The fruit will come. God wants ultimate intimacy with us. And my tendency is that I say I trust God, I'll abide in him. Doesn't that sound beautiful just to say it? I abide in God. I trust in him right up until the point I can't. Have you been there? It's the business guy who says our business is going through trouble and I trust God, I trust him right until the point it doesn't and then I'll pray for that great lawyer to sue those people and I'll trust that God helps us win that case. Have you been there? Are you doing that in your life when it comes to a mate, when it comes to your kids, when it comes to things that we want? Paul in Galatians chapter one, verse 15 says, we need to abide and trust in God's timetable. Take a look at that verse. It says, but when he, talking about Paul, and Paul who had arguably persecuted the church over and over again, why didn't God save him when he was a child? But when he was, had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal. But when he was pleased to reveal. What's the point? God's doing things on his timetable, and it takes time. Spiritual maturity takes time, but get this. Time doesn't always equal spiritual maturity. There are so many of us sitting here that are 40, 50, 60 years, maybe we've been a believer, and we've never abided in a good way, and we're reaping what we sow. Last verse, and we'll close. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says this, but when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. It's talking about Moses and all of that. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Transformation takes time. And so I'm just a branch. I'm just a branch who understands God's goodness. I'm just a branch who believes that God is good. I truly do, and I hope that you do, and we abide in that goodness. I'm a branch who, with hope and patience and waiting, will bear the goodness of God, a beautiful fruit for the entire world to see so that we can brought, they can be brought to the same beginning we were, salvation in him, and they can be planted firmly. And I see it as a good thing, a vine that is planted already, tended like no other, and I live out my life with the fruit of his goodness because of who I am and is a good, good thing. Let's pray together and then we'll get on with our day. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, I pray that as we um, leave here today that we wouldn't get to the handle of our car doors and just think that that was a nice day, but that we'd really think about where our hearts are lying. That we'd really be convicted if there's any motivation in us that is for us that you would weed that out, that you would prune that branch. And Lord, you'd help us and give us the ability to be abiders, to remain in you. And we fully recognize theologically that we can't even do that without the help of your spirits. And Lord, those of us that feel like nothing this morning, feel like we are not important, not valued, may we understand that by getting or reabiding in that branch will bring us the fullness, the hope, the joy, the peace, and all of the fruit that you wanna do through us in your time. So Father, we trust you to do that in your time. We pray that you would do it in and through your time and we'll glorify you as you produce that in us. Thank you for choosing us to be part of all that and we'll praise you in your son's name, amen. Thank you folks, have a great rest of the day.